I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Welcome back to This Connected Life. My guest today is the fabulous Mr. Tony Ryan. Tony and I have been friends for a really long time and I wanted to get him on the show this week to talk about a whole bunch of things that he loves to talk about. So Tony, if you don't know him, is a lifelong educator, a parent and a futurist. He's worked with over a thousand education, business and parent groups in 10 different countries throughout his career and he's the author of eight books. He's an Australian ambassador for School Aid, a former national president of Professional Speakers Australia, which is how we met a very long time ago. And he's also host of a podcast, a limited edition podcast called Georgie's Future. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. Thank you, Tony, and welcome. Thank you, Mel. It is magic to be with you. I'm just going to say as well, we're sitting at my dining room table it's thankfully not a hot day because we've got the whole house closed up so we don't get aeroplane noise, bird noise and chicken sounds. So here we are. My first question that I always ask, Tony, is what does connection mean to you? Funnily enough, doing this podcast with you because I'm not doing this for the sake of the podcast. I'm doing it more for just the conversation with you, which I just loved having anyway. Though, you know, if I was trying to go for a bigger picture on it, it is conversation. That to me is connection. Uh, I think the whole world is made up of the sum total of all the conversations we have every day. I reckon you can, up to a point, measure the quality of your life by what happens in dialogue you have with every other human being. So if you are surrounded by people who are vindictive, miserable, negative, bitter, that probably will shape your life. In fact, I could pretty well measure what today is going to be like on this planet. If I could take the sum total of words said by 7.6 billion people, heaven knows how many words that would be, and put them onto a massive continuum from negative to positive, that will essentially determine what sort of mood we are in collectively on this planet. So when you talk connection, I think all the time dialogue, it's the words we use. Oh, I love that. The father of a friend of mine, who's also now a friend of mine, is famous for giving the same speech at every one of his kids and stepkids' weddings, significant birthdays, christings of their kids. (laughs) And one of the things he always says is, you can really tell the quality of a person by the people who are friends with them and the nature of the friendships, how long they've been and how deep they are. And the first time I heard him give this speech was at his daughter's wedding about, oh, it must be 23, 24 years ago. And I just remember looking around the room and thinking, you're so right, because people in the room had known the bride for her entire life, friends who she'd been at preschool with and, and, you know, prep with, right through to people she'd met at university. And I think I was her newest friend. I'd only known her for two years at that stage. And it was really interesting, but I really love that that definition of connection that you have around conversation. I ask that question of everybody and no one's ever given that answer before. (laughs) More of that to come, I think. Yeah, but that's what I love about the question because connection means something different to everybody. Oh, look, it is almost mystical with how far we could go with this. And by the way, we're going to see some interesting variations on this in the years up ahead, mainly because of the technologies, because now we live two lives. We live the real life with human beings we meet in real time and then of course the online life and that's going to reshape the way that we connect with people. 
I think it already is because often there's such a demarcation between the life we live in public through Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn to a lesser extent compared to the life we live when we have, you know, sit across the table and have conversations with people. And I know this was really brought home to me a few years ago when a girlfriend of mine was just in tears about a relationship she was in and how awful it was and how unhappy she was. And a few days later, it was her birthday. And she just put this post up on Facebook about how amazing her husband was and how amazing her family was. And I just thought, he wasn't even with you on your birthday. Because when I rang you to say happy birthday, you were in tears because he'd gone off on a boy's day. And I just thought that that to me just made me really realize that not all is what it seems. And I guess the more we can have that pick up the phone and talk to somebody or, you know, catch up with a friend for a coffee, the more likely you are to really fully understand what's happening in their world. Look, Mel, I'm a recurring theme on this one. I actually think the world is better than most people think it is. And too often we just hear the 1% of really vindictive and awful stories about the planet. We don't take into account all the everyday good things being done by so many people like that. And we now have a greater opportunity to do it because if you have a friend in South Africa or Carolina, you can get in touch with them immediately, whereas in ages past, not as easy. Uh, but big time's coming with all of that. We're going to see, a, say, within three decades, a collective consciousness in terms of connection. There's a deep and meaningful for you. Mm. Uh, we'll have some sort of global brain. We're only 10, 20 years away from a, a headset you wear, and by just thinking you'll be able to connect with other people. That'll be the iPhone 34, you know, and so that's going to like completely transform what it means to be connected. I'm waiting for the brainwave connection to happen where we can be much more, I guess, ESP-like. <laughs> and see the brainwaves or see what people are saying and thinking and doing without having them talk to you. And I guess we already have this connection because you sent me a text yesterday saying, are we still on for tomorrow Uh, at the exact same time that I'd emailed you? Yes. (laughs) Yes, we're still on. Mere synchronicity. (laughs) Uh, No, interesting times coming with all of this. And in fact, the technology is going to remind us of what innately we can do ourselves with connection. So over the next 30 years, we will refine these technologies that in fact allow us to transfer our thoughts. And I know that sounds just disarming and unsettling, and yet it's quite possible. And so I'd say another 10 years after that, someone's going to take the device off and realise they can do it without using the technology. So there's the 22nd century coming up for you. The connections will be unbelievable. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you've just written this amazing book called The Next Generation, Preparing Today's Kids for an Extraordinary Future. And I say just written, but it's been out for about two years now, hasn't it? Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, As educators and parents, what do we need to be aware of when it comes to how kids today connect and what they're going to expect both from parents and from educators, but also from potential employers? Okay, at a meta level, I'd say that we need to reframe the mindsets of kids today. So as an example, in the last couple of months, I've asked something like, say, 400 young people what they believe the world will be like up ahead. From a rating of 1 to 10, with 1 being horrendous, with massive destruction and deaths everywhere, to 10 where it's nirvana and beautiful and everyone's in love with each other, the average for 12 to 15-year-olds is a 4 out of 10. I find the average with adults is about 6.5 to 7 out of 10. I then ask them what they want it to be like up ahead. What would they like it to be like? And everyone says at least a nine. 
So we obviously have a problem with this. So when you ask that question, I would respond by saying we need to help kids to reframe a mindset about the future being possibly optimistic. In fact, I use the word extraordinary and I don't use it lightly. The media often give me a hard time about the word saying, how can the world be extraordinary? Look at it today. It's awful. It's horrendous. And I go, yes, well, you just read the news out each day. You're not looking at what happens in everyday life with good people actually loving kids and giving them great support. However, we need to help kids with this because we've got mental health issues and uh, levels of worry and depression unlike anything ever before. And I actually think in part it's perception. The world is a beautiful mess. It always has been. It always will be. Okay, there are always issues in it. You know, Donald Trump's Twitter feed, you know, like uh, climate change, it's all actually happening. There's no doubt about that, except we need to show kids how they can create a future that's viable and exciting. So there's my first big response to that one. If you want to get into the details in terms of how to help kids get ready for it, you talk what are called capabilities. There's the fancy word of the day. A capability is something that makes you more capable of coping with dramatic change up ahead. Now, I can give you a whole list of them, and good parents and great educators already know these intuitively, but we're talking things like the ability to think critically and creatively, understanding how to communicate well with other people in real life as well as online, having what is called adaptive agility. There's another fancy expression, and yet it's a really important one. It means you adapt you have, you're agile, you can change according to circumstances very rapidly because we're seeing exponentialities everywhere. The rate of change is more rapid than ever before. So we need kids who actually accept that and see it as something exciting where they're learning from it as compared to feeling swamped by it. So there are a few thoughts in terms of preparing them. To wrap up maybe on that question, funnily enough, the best way to raise kids to cope with the future is to love them unconditionally. This is coming from a boy here. I'm telling you straight, all the ancient wisdoms, all the modern psychology, the great religions all talk about some concept of unconditional love. That means you love a child without condition, regardless of their behavior. The behavior might be average. You say we need to change the behavior, but you yourself are loved unconditionally. The data is indisputable on it over the decades. When children are loved unconditionally, on average, they grow up more centered, focused, capable of living a fulfilling life. So there's a bit of a deep one for you. Mm, there's a few things I want to talk about there. Um, the first thing that you mentioned was around how the news is so negative, but there's so many great things happening. One of the things, like I so rarely watch the news these days because I'm just so sick of it being one bad story after another, after another, after another. And I would love to see news outlets alternate between a bad story and a good news story. There's a lot of ugly things happening in the world at the moment, but for example, you know, maybe lead off with a story about the bushfires, but then second have, have the second story, maybe still about the bushfires, but a good news story. You know, this is what's been put out. This is how many animals were saved. This is the kindness of strangers to other people in their community. Let's not make it all so negative. I just would so love to see that because I think one of the reasons there's there is so much fear about the future is because we're not given any hope in the media these days. Okay, there's the key word. Uh, there's deep psychology behind that. The word hope is the best four-letter word you can talk about. And to some degree, we're taking it away from people everywhere. When it comes to the media, I tend not to rain on their parade because most of them are good people and they work hard and they do the best they can. The trouble is they're trying to tap into what we call our amygdala in our brain. They're the fancy little things that get all buzzed when we hear awful news. And tens of thousands of years ago, they kept us alive you know, because we suspected the saber-toothed tiger was nearby. Now we don't have many of those tigers in everyday life, okay? And yet people need somehow that worry and concern. It's a worry in itself. I find about 70% of all articles on the news, the negative ones, 
and they focus in on the worst excesses of the planet that day. They usually do a couple of good news stories here and there. Yeah, we need to change that around. Yeah. All I want is what is called realistic optimism. It's 90% optimism. So if you had a line from like a, you know, zero to 100%, you know, here I go with lines again, I'm into the 90% line where we still stay a little bit suspicious about anything that looks like it's not a good thing, but at the same time we keep looking for the best. And I'd love everyone in the media to do that same sort of thing. I would as well. The second thing you mentioned is capabilities and how we can help our kids face the dramatic change or deal with change. Have you got a couple of practical ways that that could happen? Oh, totally. Uh, Let me see. Uh, Let's start with thinking. Teach children how to think. Not what to think, but how to think. Okay, so I wrote a, a pretty extensive program over the years, last few years, and it's called Thinker's Keys. So there's a free download online at thinkerskeys.com, so you can help yourself to anything you find there. I came up with 20 strategies that I think represent the best possible thinking that can be done by children all over the planet. So it's been sold in 28 countries, it's used in tens of thousands of schools, all that sort of thing. Uh, And I focus in on what is called critical thinking and then creative thinking. So I've got 10 strategies in each. Okay, so you expressly teach these strategies in context in real life to children. So, for example, if you want them to be creative, one of the strategies I've got is one I call the combination key, and it's where you uh, combine two disparate things into one new, uh, like, uh, device or process or something like that. So I'm thinking of a school I was working at once where we combined surfboards with ice blocks because one boy had an uncle who used to hire out surfboards, and he said the problem was that, you know, no one ever brings their surfboard back in on time, and you call it number 62, please come on in, and they pretend they can't hear you. So we decided to solve the problem by using ice blocks paddle pops, whatever you call them around the world. Anyway, these kids said, well, what we'll do is we'll make the surfboards out of ice so that after one hour they just melt anyway and then they wouldn't have to bring it in because it would just disappear. (laughs) And I can give you thousands of examples of the sort of thinking children come up with. It's just extraordinary. So that's just one example. Combine two different things together. If you've got a problem to solve, think of something. Go to an old dictionary or something, pull out a, a word that's got nothing to do with it and see if you can use that word to just generate some thoughts on it. So there are lots of great strategies, thinkerskeys.com, but believe me, there's a lot of other great stuff out there. That's so clever. I really I love that. I'm going to go and have a look at that, and I'll pop the link in the show notes for anybody who's listening. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is for years you've been saying that the combination of AI and the human brain will redefine human society. What do you mean by that? I think we're going to see an eventual symbiosis between human and artificial device. Now, from one side, we're already augmenting our own humanity with what we can add to our bodies and even our brains to some limited degree. So as far as I know, nearly every part of the body can be supplanted, both outside and inside. We now have prosthetic hands that can be controlled by our thinking, which is just extraordinary technology. So on that side, we are improving who we actually are as humans. However, the robotics is also becoming quite fascinating. We're probably only, say, 10 years away from people having relationships with robots. Read between the lines on that one and that's going to actually forever change the way that we interact in terms of so-called you know connection because if we've got 18 year olds today who are so into their technology that they think oh I can like have shall we say intimate you know relationships with an artificial device that forever changes the way that we live on this planet now I'm into being open and considering opportunities up ahead except even that one has me a little bit concerned (laughs) because at that point I think we're forever changing who we are in the human dynamic so the robots are going to get better at being human in fact we talk about like what is called the hidden valley and it's where you know there's a an unease about how they look so human that we almost can't tell the difference 
but that's pretty well inevitable. So <laughs> we're going to see this point up ahead where we do have that overlap. I, by the way, see a lot of merit in all of this as well. It's going to keep us alive for longer. We're going to be healthier. We're going to possibly live forever, repeat, live forever in, say, 50 years from now, which is going to create all sorts of other questions too, like who gets to choose to live to ever, ever? Is it only people in first world countries or people who are wealthy who can afford it? So big questions coming with that. But generally, we're going to improve who we are as humans. And by the way, given the issues on the planet today, we're going to need to get better. And we're doing a lot of this in schools where we're teaching kids how to resolve amazing issues. And in another day and age, I'll happily explain a whole lot of those wonderful things I'm seeing. In fact, I was just talking with a school in Tasmania, and they had some children this year, some 10-year-olds who were raising $25 at a time and then loaning it in kiva.org to people in need around the planet. Then they'd monitor how effective that loan was. They'd get the loan repaid, then they'd move it on to someone else. So they kept raising more and more blocks of $25 to do this. You know, we're talking 10 and 11 year olds you know the world's actually going to be a good place when we have that sort of thing happening right now there's so many kids doing amazing things for the planet who are just not who just quietly get on with it and do it because their parents are teaching them their teachers are teaching them and i think that's it, it so many kids get such a bad rap or the, the generation of you know children and and millennials get such a bad rap but so many of them are just so revolutionary in their thinking and kind in their actions oh how long have you got yeah. <laughs> i could you know talk for a very long time about the great things that are going on with young kids today and that you know certainly one percent have an issue they you know their their heads are scrambled because of the chemical overload at the age of 16 and a whole lot of other things like that except a lot are doing the most amazing things you know they're creating world changing uh, like inventions right now even at the age of 9 or 10 wow yeah i've got a girlfriend whose little girl wanted to go and see the harry potter show in melbourne and her mum said well at 600 dollars for two tickets like for the two shows plus flights and accommodation I don't think so. <laughs> You'll have to do something to earn the money or to save the money so that you can contribute towards the cost of that. And so very entrepreneurial child started a little business making hair scrunchies for her friends at school, very cleverly made them in her school colours plus the school colours of all of the neighbouring schools and in the first, I think, six months sold enough to make a $2,000 profit. Phenomenal. Yep. With the full backing of the school to do it, yes. once they realised what she was doing, the headmistress said, happy to support you, but you need to give me a business plan and you need to come in for a meeting. Pretend I'm a client because I am. <laughs> and so she did. And she's, I think she's 12. Yep. You know, so you, you were asking earlier about capabilities that are most necessary. I would love every kid on this planet to grow up to be a social entrepreneur not just an entrepreneur. That's where you make money and, you know, you do well out of it and that's great as long as it's done ethically. Social entrepreneurship is where perhaps 50% of what they make is donated to a local charity, like a 14-year-old I know who does that. Mm -hmm. She makes greeting cards and sells them in weekend markets. There are so many examples of this around. Yeah, I'd love to see more of that as well. And not just for kids, but for adults too. There's so many adults who do nothing, who give nothing back when they have every capability of doing so. I think we need to work out opportunities for them to do so because I reckon there's a, a huge middle area of people who would like to help though they don't know how to. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I do a lot of work with uh, non-profit organisations and member-based associations and they're all calling out for people to volunteer but there's this perception that if you volunteer, particularly with an association, that you need to be on a committee or you need to be on the board and it requires a significant 
donation of your time. And that's not the case in most instances. Quite often it's an hour or two a month that you could do something to give back. And I think a list of everything that can be done is a great idea. Look, even in Australia, there are 35,000 non-profit organisations that even specifically help children, let alone many others as well. And these are the registered ones. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. Maybe they need to reframe how they indicate they'd like support, just saying, we'd love one hour a month. I think that appeals to the Gen Zs, Gen Ys, just one hour a month. They don't want to commit forever and sing allegiance to whatever, you know, every week at a meeting. They just want to get in, do it, move on. And you'll see that over Christmas time every year. I met a guy who runs an organisation called Volley, and it's an online organisation where they match non-profits with potential volunteers. And he said, I thought we'd have problems finding enough volunteers, but we actually have problems getting enough people who have things that they need volunteers for. Because he said, And then he said, I thought the bulk of our volunteers would be older, but they're all in their 20s. A couple in their early 30s, some in their teens, but the vast majority are under the age of 35. And he said he was just blown away by the volume of people who are prepared to donate their time to do something that they believe is of value. And I think there's this massive untapped opportunity there to let these people do something for the community and for the greater good. Yep. Here's your connection. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to... um, digress slightly you as well as doing a lot of work to help educate kids you also do a lot of adult education through your speaking and your facilitation and the training that you run what's the difference do you think between educating children and educating adults okay two fancy words for you the first one is pedagogy it's the art and science of learning for four to 18 year olds here's the other fancy word it's andragogy a-n-d-r-a-g-o-g-y and that's the art and science of learning for grown-ups now, in the ages past, we used to have differences between them. Uh, so, for example, adults need to reflect on what they learn before they put it into practice. If they don't, they're very unlikely to do so. They also need to have self-motivation. If they don't have that, they're also unlikely to put it into place. And in ages past, we assumed that children already had these things or the teachers just did it at them or to them, really for them. However, things are changing because these days we're now pushing what is called agency with children. Now, it's another fancy word, and it basically means they have ownership So they think for themselves and they make decisions accordingly. So they don't have to rely on someone else telling them what to know. They know how to go and find it themselves with guidance from the adult. Okay, so in ages past, there were lots of differences between the pedagogy and andragogy. Now they're overlapping more and more because we're almost treating children, even five-year-olds, as though they're many adults and they're capable of the most amazing thought and processing that can actually resolve different things. And as a result, they take more ownership on their learning. So they do things like set up their own what would you call it, a learning playlist as compared to a music playlist. So you might put up, you know, 15 songs to for the people coming over that night for a party. Well, now we encourage kids to set up a learning playlist over every couple of months. So they're always setting out different projects they can work on, both outside and inside school, and they're constantly monitoring and refining that. Can I hint for any grown-up listening to this? I'd love them to do the same. You need to be a learner and take on new experiences all the time. So my provocation is what's going to be different about you in one year's time compared to now? You know, what are you going to do that actually creates an even more amazing you? And it all comes down to learning. 
So just to completely put you on the spot, how are you different today from this day a year ago? <laughs> uh, partly because of the travel I've done, so I'm very lucky. I have hundreds of thousands of frequent flight points and I make use of that. Uh, I have really pushed hard in terms of the way that I present, in terms of the slides I use. I've kept refining them quite directly. My golf has got better uh, because <laughs> I made the effort to go to a coach and I'm um, listening. Now, some people may not agree with me on the golf one, but generally it has improved quite dramatically because of that. I actually uh, refurbished a house, took about lessons involved in that one. <laughs> the first lesson is never do it again. After that, though, the negotiation, you know, with uh, tradies uh, coming in and doing the work, it just uh, a very interesting learning experience in itself. Going through, you know, like uh, in a beautiful relationship at the moment and always working out how to fine tune and refine on that as well. Lots of things are different about me. I love that. What are a couple of things that you personally do to become more connectable? Look, I'm passable with the online stuff, nothing compared to you, uh, though, you know, I find LinkedIn, and you've recommended that to me before, to be the one for the professional side. Uh, Twitter I use, you know, reasonably often. I love the real-life meetups. As much as possible, I'll make the effort to meet up with someone who gets in touch and says, look, how can I become a competent professional speaker? And I'll say, well, I'll save you two years of grief in one hour. So we'll find a coffee shop somewhere between the two of us and I'll meet up and have a talk with them. So how can you become a competent professional speaker? Let's just <laughs> give two or three points about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, when I started, I would go to the opening of an envelope if it meant that I got the opportunity to speak in public. Uh, you simply have to find opportunities everywhere. So that could link us into like the charities and giving them support. So if you're passable at you know giving speeches, maybe you offer to them that you will actually do that to promote their work at different times, and you do that for free. I've given at least 3,000 now uh, paid engagements in the time I've been doing this. That's a fair few. And then quite a few unpaid ones where a charity asks for something or a good friend needs something done and that sort of stuff. Uh, nothing succeeds like success and being able to do it over and over. That would be one of my upfront points. Another would be just constantly learn how to get better and better at it. The hardest of all is to take a video of yourself doing it. Most of us just go, OMG, I can't stand watching myself on video. Fair enough, I get that too. I don't even like listening to myself even after all of this because I speak too quickly and I go, I can't believe how rapidly I speak. However, when you watch a five-minute video of yourself, you just go, wow, look at what I did there and there and how I could adjust that. You'll find people everywhere who want to give support to you. When it comes to professional speaking, like, you know, I've been like national president, you know, in terms of the association here, and we would do anything to help someone else to be good. They're not going to be competition. They're actually going to make the whole like profession look better because they are really competent. So we want people to be good. I think that's what I love the most about my membership of Professional Speakers Australia is nobody who I've come across sees the other speakers in the room as competitors. The amount of love and support that I've had in the I don't know, 10 or 12 years that I've been a member, particularly in the early days, was just ridiculous. Absolutely. It was so unexpected to me because I came from, you know, marketing associations where it was just so cutthroat. And, you know, I had two other marketing professionals in Brisbane tell me that I had to leave our local chamber of commerce because there wasn't enough business for the three of us and they were there first. Yep. Yeah, no, needless to say. The, 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 <laughs> you know, the pie gets bigger and bigger. You know, Absolutely. There's so many other opportunities for creating work. We need to think that way as compared to thinking it's a scarcity mentality. Yeah, and I love the expression, a rising tide floats all boats, and <laughs> that's definitely something that I see, you know, every day that I'm involved in Professional Speakers Australia. Yep, and the direct link to that is the concept of the common good. Absolutely. Uh, which I think comes back to your original dynamic with this entire podcast in terms of connection. 
until we wake up to the common good and realize that what you know each of us does actually contributes to everything else and makes everyone else you know work more effectively then we'll know we're on to something special. Yeah, absolutely agree. We've just got a few minutes left. Is there any particular book that has impacted you or that that you come back to again and again and again? Hundreds. I actually read four or five books at a time. Maybe it's not a good thing, but it's just how I am. Though when it comes to books that have really influenced me, oh, gee, I love Yuval Noah Harari's work. Opus Day and uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, an amazing thinker, that impressive. Uh, they are beautiful, beautiful books. Though one that really affected me in the last couple of years was one by a Swedish guy called Hans Rosling, who does the most amazing TED Talks. Now, this guy died, I think, in 2018, but he had the most beautiful way of portraying graphics and uh, graphs. Anyway, he wrote a book called Factfulness, Oh, yes, yes. Factfulness. Now, it is a sleeper. It is just sold in droves, and it's always sitting there on a bookshelf somewhere, a bright orange book. And what he did was this. He actually went and did the data analysis on what's really happening on the planet. And what he found was there's a lot of things going on that are much better than most people think they are. So the like the number of girls in primary school has risen dramatically in the past 20 years, and a whole lot of other data like this. And what he found as he went around the planet was that most people just went, no, that's not possible. It can't be anything like that. And that's because people are stuck in the 1990s. You know, the last 25 years has been dramatic in terms of changes on this planet. So I loved that book. It's called Factfulness. That was a book that last year both Bill Gates and Barack Obama put on their book of the year list yes. for books that they'd read in 2018 that just really resonated. Absolutely. And you reminded me that I borrowed from the library, read a little bit of it, and then had to return it and haven't picked it up again. So that might go on the Christmas list for my husband, <laughs> one of those books that I really want to read, but I'm going to buy him instead. Oh, look, it, it, <laughs> it's almost like entertaining data. It's just a beautiful mm. book. So, yeah, that was one that really affected me too. Oh, I love that. And what are you reading now? Uh, you can see. give me all four or five if you like. Yeah. Here are a couple. Uh, Melinda Gates has uh, written a book recently called The Moment of Lift. That's such a great book. I now, love that book. Okay, there you go. See, if I had one wish oh, out of thousands, I had a magic wand, I would decree that every girl on this planet received a primary school education. At that point within a decade, we are going to transform human civilization. It's that big, and we're already on our way with that one. So that's one. Uh, I love Steve Biddulph's uh, work, a Tasmanian guy, and he's just written a book called A New Manhood. While I'm totally into giving support to women being amazing, and especially the girls getting an education, guys might need to sort out their thinking a little bit too, and I love this guy's work. It's called A New Manhood. It's really worth a read. I feel like men have been a little bit hardly done by in the last decade because women are rising so quickly and I feel that there's often a little bit of men bashing that's not really necessary or relevant to yeah, this, the cause. This would be a conversation for another day. Maybe some of the men had it a bit too easy in the previous hundred years and then they were recalling at the reality that maybe they can't have it just that way anymore. I'm quite delighted about the rise of women. In fact, the 21st century is going to be the century of the feminine mm -hmm. and uh, it's going to create this great, wonderful world up ahead because of that, because we too long have you know misused the, the talent of so many women everywhere. Guys need to become better human beings. Yeah. So they can cope with this. Yep. Barack Obama came out last week at his leadership summit in Malaysia and said women are better leaders than men. And I've certainly experienced that in my time as a leader. 
And I thought that was really, really interesting for somebody who had such a pivotal role in global leadership to say that women are actually better at it than than he is and that men are in general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, perhaps some men have too much ego attached to the power of being in leadership, whereas women have a more rounded perspective on it all. Gross generalisation, but absolutely. Yeah. So what else are you reading? <laughs> uh, I must admit I read endlessly online. Not always a good thing, though I love to just travail, just move through, click, go to something else, look at recommendations. I usually have nine or ten close friends who are often putting up great recommendations, so I'm always reading those short articles. I love anything that's truly edgy. I'm working in London in another month's time, and I'm working with this technology company, and one guy in it is just incredible with his thinking. He's into, like, cybernetics and, you know, the, the, the next stage of the humanity where we go beyond being human. I have to admit I'm into that sort of thing. Yeah. Lots of articles on that. I'll have to keep a closer eye on your LinkedIn and expect you to share a few of those. I will, absolutely. <laughs> have you read Michelle Obama's book, Becoming? No. That's excellent. When All you right. finish reading Melinda Gates, pop that on your Done. list. Okay. Very compelling. And apparently she does the audio book if you're into audio books. She's reading it. So fantastic. So if people would like to connect with you, where can they find you? Oh, my website is at tonyryan.com.au. I'm in, uh, in LinkedIn on Tony Ryan. You know, I think it, the subheading is Education uh, Futurist. I'm in Twitter at Aussie Tony, A-U-S-S-I-E-T-O-N-Y. There are a few. Uh, my phone number's there for anyone who wishes to call. I'll pop the links in the show notes. Maybe not your phone number, but I'll link to it so <laughs> people can find it on your website if they want to. This has been such an interesting conversation. I could continue talking to you about any of these things for another hour or two or three or ten, but... We will not continue today, but perhaps another time in six months or I'd in a year. I'd love to connect. Because there's a few things that we could easily tease out. So, Tony Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Have a fabulous Christmas because we're recording this a week before Christmas, but it won't be out till January. So, and you happy have an 2020. amazing 2020 as well, Mel. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at melkettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.